0: Welcome to Let's Talk Memoir, a podcast for memoir lovers, readers, and writers. I'm your host, Ronit Plank. Today, my guest is Kelly Sundberg. Her memoir Goodbye Sweet Girl was published by HarperCollins in 2018. Her essays have appeared in the New York Times Modern Love, Alaska Quarterly Review, Guernica, Gulf Coast, The Rumpus, Denver Quarterly, Slice, and many other literary and commercial magazines. Her essay, It Will Look Like a Sunset, was selected for inclusion in the Best American Essays 2015, and other essays have been listed as notables in the Best American Essays 2013, 2016, and 2018. She has a PhD in Creative Nonfiction from Ohio University and has been the recipient of fellowships or grants from Vermont Studio Center, A Room of Her Own Foundation, Dickinson House, and the National Endowment for the Arts. She was recently awarded a 2021 Individual Excellence Award from the Ohio Arts Council, and she is an Assistant Professor of English at Ashland University in Ashland, Ohio. Welcome, Kelly.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: Thank you for being my guest. I'm really excited that you're here and I want to go ahead and dig in. So I read your memoir a little while ago, and for those who have not read your memoir, can you share a little bit about it?
1: Yeah, the promotional materials really advertise it as a book that attempts to answer the question of why someone would stay in an abusive relationship. And I think that question is flawed, but that said, so many people asked it of me that I did seek to try to answer the question for myself and for others. And what I realized is that relationships are not built in a vacuum. So this is not just a memoir about interpersonal violence. It's not just a memoir of a marriage. It's a memoir of an entire childhood, entire life. I grew up in rural Idaho um, in a very kind of conservative Mormon community. I was raised with a certain set of values and cultural expectations. And so I wanted to examine the ways in which those values and expectations turned me into someone who later as an adult was willing to accept really egregious behavior from someone who loved me.
0: Mm -hmm. And so when you write a memoir like this, I mean, all memoirs are so personal, but how did it feel to have the publishers focus on that aspect of it when they were describing the memoir? And, And was there a problem for that with that for you?
1: You know, I think I tried to trust that the publisher knew what they were doing, that I know that there's all kinds of factors at play, like search engine optimization, and ultimately it really is a book about domestic violence, but I also think it's a book that's about much more. I don't think someone has to just be interested in domestic violence to seek it out, Mm -hmm. and I wish that the promotion would have been just a little bit more representative of the complexity of it. It also, I would say, is, is, it's a quiet memoir. It It's not, I mean, some people complained in, in reviews on Goodreads, which I know you're never supposed to read, but I did. <laughs> people, people really complained that there wasn't enough violence in it. Um, oh my gosh, really? Yeah. It, it, when you start reading those Goodreads reviews, it's, it's not a good place to be, but it is a quiet memoir. Not much of the violence happens until the end because it's so much more about grooming and mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. cultural grooming as well as individual grooming. And I do wish that had come across a little more in the descriptions of it.
0: Mm. It is an interesting tension between what you mean or want to convey with a book and how people take it and how people see it themselves. And it's like, of course, that happens when we read and when we write. There's obviously going to be sort of a gap between what we're trying to convey and what people understand. But for me, not having gone through your experience, it feels even more personal and even more tender to share a story like this and then read feedback about it.
1: Yeah, I think I feel close to a lot of my readers. I've received a lot of emails. Many, many people have said that it helped them understand their own relationships better. And mm, I don't think mm-hmm. anything makes me feel more seen than that because really the in the book, it's, it's not just an exploration for others of why I stayed in the marriage. It's an exploration for myself because I certainly on the other end of it, thought, what was wrong with me? Why, why would I accept that? And I was... <laughs> You know, the thing about abuse is it's really like brainwashing, and so Mm -hmm. you have to deprogram afterwards. My son actually said to me the other day, he said, Mom, statistically, most women who've been abused end up in similar relationships later, right? And I was like, yeah. And he said, why do you think that didn't happen to you? And Mm -hmm. I really think it's because I took years to just be alone and to, to learn how to think for myself and to figure out what happened. But yeah, if Mm -hmm. I had gotten in a relationship too quickly, I'm sure all of that brainwashing still would have been present.
0: Mm -hmm. And it's interesting because you, every time you answer something I ask, you're basically leading into the next question I had. And now I have about three questions just brimming over that I want to ask you. And so I guess I'll, I'll start with one, even though they're all pretty relevant at this point. So when you think about your story and you think about it's not just about the abuse, it's about your pattern in there. That kind of reminds me of a lot of what we talk about on this show, which is that a memoir isn't just what happened to you and the events. And I think that's where maybe newer memoirists might get a little bit confused or they may not be aware of this as much. It's about finding the patterns and trying to find the significance of the choices you made as well and why your story unfolded the way it did. And so when you began to write the memoir, I'm curious how long after you had been out of the marriage or in your marriage, did you begin writing it and starting to look at it more analytically?
1: Well, actually, parts of it were written while I was still in the marriage. I did my Mm. MFA while I was still married to him. During that time, the abuse was really its worst. And I had written these essays about my childhood that didn't explicitly mention that I was being abused in my marriage because that wasn't something I was open about at that point. But looking back, I realized they, there was a kind of menace and foreboding there, that Mm. this part of me that was deep inside was trying to get out. And so some of those essays became, of course, in revised format, because you can't just take an essay and slot it into a memoir. But some of them Mm. became revised and became um, chapters in the book. So Mm -hmm. the first chapter initially was an essay the second chapter initially was an essay i think maybe the first three or four most of the stuff about childhood and then towards the end it was all new i sold the book on a proposal so Mm -hmm. i sold the book in 2016 at the very end of 2016 and i said i would write it in a year it took me 18 months and it was published in 2018. Maybe I sold it in 2015. But so it sounds like 18 months doesn't sound like that long, but really I, I can't quantify how long it did take to write because mm-hmm, mm-hmm. the writing went back for years. But the second half of this stuff, which was very explicitly about the marriage, I wrote all of that kind of in one long almost manic sweep. I I think people who read it can see when the pace changes. Mm -hmm. And that reflects to a degree that that getting out of the marriage became much more urgent. So that Mm -hmm. fast pace reflects that. But it's also just because that stuff was still close. And psychologically, Mm -hmm. I just wrote it fast just to have it out of me. And that stuff was written in 2017 i i think the last third of the book was written in about a month
0: wow was it was it hard did you still have a sense of foreboding was there still sort of anything looming over you because of trying to extricate yourself entirely from the marriage and, and the history you shared with your ex
1: yeah, it was really hard. Those last chapters, I would write until 4 a.m. My son was at his dad's. We do have some shared custody. My son spends time there in the summer. And I so I was home alone, and I would write until 4 a.m. And then I would just lay on the floor and cry sometimes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, you know, everyone says about writing that you shouldn't write about trauma as it's happening. You need to take the time to process it first and I actually don't think that's true I think I wouldn't frankly want to go back and revisit that material now um Mm. when it's not fresh I don't know why anyone would want to go back and explore a trauma after they you know Mm. put it to rest in some capacity so it it was hard it was also Very healing. I have a friend who is a therapist and she does exposure therapy. And she said Mm -hmm. to me at the time, you know, you're really doing some exposure therapy with this. And Mm -hmm. of course it it wasn't really therapy, but just getting everything out felt really good. I don't see writing as therapy. (laughs) You know, Mm -hmm. I I have a therapist and I've Mm -hmm. gotten lots of therapy. So my writing is not my therapy, but I would be Disingenuous. If I didn't say that, for me, it has been very healing.
0: Mm-hmm. Is it hard to talk about the memoir? You know, I, I'm thinking about so many people have experience with domestic violence, and 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 a lot of other people are curious about it. And and you kind of mentioned that some of the reviewers that you read were I don't even know how to say this uh, quote hoping for more. I just you know it's kind of a strange thing, but you know, writing memoir and having your story out there like that. How did you separate your personal story and the character you and this memoir that people got to know so intimately from the other writing and your work as a teacher in the world?
1: I think in the first year after the book came out, it was it was hard. I, I went on a pretty lengthy book tour. Um, and the book got quite a bit of critical reception. So it was getting mentioned a lot. It was a big part of my life. And that was something that I had assumed I would enjoy, but that actually made me feel, um, very vulnerable and exposed. And looking back now, I realize I was definitely triggered with my, cause I I do have post-traumatic stress disorder I was definitely triggered for the better part of two years after the book came out I've seen other writers who've talked about having had similar experiences I truly didn't expect to have that experience because I thought I was in a good place but Hmm. you know Mm -hmm. we don't always know um and during that time I started writing these essays about PTSD like very lyric essays that I really wanted to show the sort of corporeal experience of having PTSD, not not the psychological experience, but the way that it's embodied. Mm. And I'm working on a book now of lyric essays about PTSD, because I really kind of threw my way into that mm. as my relief there. Um, I'm doing much better mental health wise. And so I really want the book to have a turn and kind of talk about the sort of alchemical value of PTSD because, you know, no one wants to, it's not like there are good aspects to PTSD, but learning how to incorporate it into my body and my brain in a lot of ways really has made me a more thoughtful and considerate and empathetic person. So I want to show the ways that that can happen.
0: I love that because I haven't considered that. And as soon as you mentioned you're working on lyric essays, I thought I want to read those because I'm interested, so interested in the lyric essay. And I think that transforming or attempting to transform the PTSD or at least kind of air it into the world must be so helpful, even though what you're saying is, of course, you don't want to have it in the first place, but if you're going to have it, you have this ability to do something with it. And I was also going to ask you what you're working on now, so you answered that question too. You're like three steps ahead of me.
1: Um, well, and I will say you can find a couple of the essays. I've been very lucky. Roxane Gay has been a really wonderful mentor to me, and she published two of the essays at Gay Magazine, which sadly mm-hmm. is no longer in existence, but it's still archived online. Okay. Um, one essay is called Every Line is a Scream About Getting a Trauma Tattoo, and mm-hmm. the other one's called Ritchie County Mall About a 7-Eleven in West Virginia. So if you want to read them, you can find them.
0: Yes, and I'll link them in the show notes too so people can find them. So about this story and sharing personal stories, almost any time I speak with memoirists or people who are beginning to write their books, and this came up a lot at the AWP conference where I was just presenting, and people often ask about sharing stories that, are connected to other people, which are most of our stories. And in this case, how did you navigate? People will always say, can you write about other people? Do you have to ask their permission? Do you have to let them know? And I, I'm sure I'm not the first person who's asking you this question, but how did you navigate this with your ex?
1: Uh, I did not let my ex know. I know he found out. I didn't ask him for any permission. I didn't think I owed that to him. I am very fortunate that Collins hired a lawyer who did an extensive legal review so Mm -hmm. that if he came back afterwards and you know tried to sue me or said that I was lying they would have the documents in hand so I felt pretty comfortable I didn't feel badly writing about him for Mm -hmm. one thing I think I wrote about him with a lot of compassion considering I think
0: so too what he did
1: to me I I'm sure he doesn't see it that way but I think most people do In terms, it was harder to write about other people, like my own family. And so, for me, the line that I drew, and I didn't give the book to my family, I didn't give them give it to them to read ahead of time. Instead, my strategy was: um, my parents are are Lutherans, and we don't talk about things. I don't know, Jewish, (laughs) and basically, we talk about everything. Yeah, but I've I've heard of the Lutherans. So I just said, you know, you don't have to read it. And as far as I know, they haven't not because Mm -hmm. they don't care. My mom just said it was very painful. She tried to read. It will look like a sunset and couldn't make it Mm -hmm. through, but they, they have given me the permission to write my line. I had for myself was that I could only talk about other people in so far as it was my story that I couldn't step into territory where I was telling their story for them. Mm -hmm. And I really tried to do this with my ex-husband as well. Um, at one point, my editor said, "You know, why do you think he? I, the, the readers aren't going to understand why he was so violent, mm-hmm. and I don't know why he was so violent." And so, in response, I wrote a chapter called "An Incomplete List of Reasons He Was Violent," and I speculated. I just about was those looking things. at that.
0: Yes, I was just looking at that chapter, actually, right? Which I, which is such an effective way to do that.
1: Well, and um, it was all speculation, so I didn't feel like it was, you know, telling his story the lawyer who did my legal review did have me take out some things that kind of disclosed family secrets of his or some things that maybe would be a little shameful to him. Um, -hmm. stuff that I hadn't thought about, but I really do think when writing about other people, we don't, I don't necessarily feel I have to show them ahead of time, but I do think that I have to be thoughtful. I didn't have any relationships that were destroyed over the book. So Mm -hmm. I think I Mm -hmm. must've done an okay job. (laughs)
0: Yes. And also about your son, Um, he is part of your memoir here and there. And so can you talk about how you navigated including him and what decisions you made along the way?
1: Yeah. um, My son and I have a, he's 16 now, so he's a teenager. We have Mm -hmm. a really good relationship. I have um, primary custody, so he's with me most of the time. And I didn't talk to him about i left his dad when he was seven and all i said at the time was you know daddy and i can't get along we can't be married anymore when he was about nine he really started to ask and at that point i i named abuse for what it was to him Mm -hmm. and i've always been open with him within you know to the degree that i'm i've never tried to candy coat anything but I've always said that what happened between his father and me is between us and doesn't affect his relationship with his father. And mm-hmm. I I really believe that I it's really, you know, he has to have the relationship with his father that that he has. I it's not my job to come in between them. And when writing the book, uh, one thing I paid a lot of attention to, you know, because Caleb, my ex-husband, in a lot of ways, was a very good father. People really mm-hmm. want to stereotype abusers just like they want to stereotype survivors. But I really tried to take care to show that, you know, he did love Reed and that Reed loved him. And again, the story was, was my own. And Reed now, he he knows what I write. Now that he's a teenager, I don't feel comfortable writing about him because, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. he's got teenage drama and stuff going on but he he knows what i've written and and doesn't have any issues with it mhm
0: right and i appreciate that very much I, I have children too i have a daughter who's 16 and a half and a son who's 14 and a half and i used to write a little bit more about them when they were little but i i too appreciate and respect like what they need from me which is to basically leave them alone and not put them in exactly. my work <laughs> um, so then as a woman who's experienced domestic violence and in a memoirist who's written about it what have you learned about depicting trauma you know what what do you feel when when you're helping students or talking to other memoirists who ask about this? You know, what are some things to avoid? Where do you recommend people lean in when they are depicting violence?
1: I am personally of the belief that when someone is depicting violence, we should take care not to go into too graphic of a of detail. And obviously some people said that my book wasn't violent enough for them, but there, I don't think that memoirs who write about trauma should have to lean into that kind of voyeuristic impulse that some trauma readers have, where they just want to see everything, you know, spread out on the page so they can experience this kind of weird toxic glee like i think it's fair for us to keep parts of our stories to ourselves i tried to be really careful in describing the violence because i did know that survivors were going to read the book and psychologically people only have a capacity to hold so much and so you know i i hate saying that maybe we need to make our story a little more palatable but the reality is is we're writing for readers and if something gets too graphic or too violent, I think readers can be, they can just shut down. And mm-hmm. so I hit a point where I, I really tried to write with a lot of restraint and I encourage my students to write with a lot of restraint because I, I just think in general, that kind of writing is, is more powerful in the long run.
0: Mm -hmm. And when you say that, and I noticed that too, because I was kind of reflecting on these comments that you heard here and there about, you know, the, the level of violence and what you included. And there is something to be said for what you don't include and allow the reader to fill in for themselves. That can be haunting and powerful and searing, actually.
1: Yeah, and I did do some things where, you know, I didn't write about the violence for a long time, but it was it was implied. And then when I did write about the first really violent scene, I broke the fourth wall and I addressed the reader and I said, and that's when it happened. I, I mean, I don't remember exactly, but I said, and that's when it happened and isn't this what you've been waiting for? Meaning hmm. the violence. Hmm. So, I I like to use kind of cues to the reader, you know, occasionally like direct address or or hinting Mm. to them that that something much worse is behind the door, but they don't need to see that. And I also, I guess was saying, and isn't that what you've been waiting for? I did want to kind of call out that voyeuristic impulse when Mm -hmm. reading about trauma to want to see it all, see all of the gory details.
0: Mm hmm. So complex. I love that you called it out. And it does give me a lot to think about. And I'm sure I'm sure readers had varying, you know, reactions to that. Like, you know, it does kind of make you interrogate what you're looking for as a reader and what you want and how much you can take.
1: I have no doubt there were readers who were like, no, that's not what I was waiting for. And there were readers who, oh, oops, that was what I was waiting for.
0: <laughs> yeah. So so in your own work, what memoirs do you go back to again and again, or memoirs that are really close to your heart that help inform your own writing?
1: So the most recent memoir that I read that I really loved was Ashley Cassandra Ford's Somebody's Daughter. It is so spare and so compact, and yet she tells this huge story in this kind of small amount of space. It's just really beautiful. I often refer back to Lydia Nivik's, um The Chronology of Water because it was the first memoir I'd read that just really messed with chronology and sort of was experimental in ways that, that felt like they mimicked the trauma because, hmm. to writing these essays about PTSD now or even writing my memoir trauma is not linear. And so I think when we're writing about it, it's very hard to attach a linear structure to it. My very favorite book of all time is Blue it's by Maggie Nelson, which mm-hmm. is not really a memoir, but it's just a long meditation on the color blue. But mm-hmm. if you read it, you'll find a lot of memoiristic details come out. Um, and then I actually read a lot of poetry too. And I think poetry informs my prose quite a bit. I don't, generally write poetry. I do occasionally, but it's not my thing. I just recently read Hanif Abdurraqib's book of poetry, A Fortune for Your Disaster. And I taught it to my students when he was our visiting writer at Ashland. Mm. And he has this series of poems that all have the same title, but are different. And the title is, How Can Black People Talk About Flowers at a Time Like This? And then a Mm -hmm. a few pages later, there's another one, but the poem is different. And I was really inspired by that and I'm I'm doing something similar in the collection that I'm working on now because I think he's using the form there to sort of describe this repetitive nature of you know in his case racial trauma so I try to be really be broad in my reading and and not just stick to like what the popular memoirs are at the time
0: yeah, and I wonder if the the interest in poetry has helped you dive in more to your lyric essay work.
1: I think it really has. It's at least given me just kind of a, a courage to really lean in to those mm. lyric impulses. You know, when you really start writing lyric essays at first, it, it feels – because they, they really defy all the rules you learn about prose in, say, like mm-hmm. college composition – <laughs> so, when you start writing lyric essays, it doesn't necessarily feel natural. And I think reading poetry gives me permission to lean into that impulse. And I definitely have short essays that I think could be classified as prose poems as well.
0: Yeah, I find it interesting. I just started doing some of that myself. Well, I've been reading poetry for the last couple of years more, even though I'm afraid of calling anything a poem. But I have had the same kind of crossover experience with trying a lyric essay and writing something that is not just a quote essay.
1: Yeah, and I think, you know, if I had any advice to give to writers, it would be to not be afraid to try things and fail because writers who don't try, who just kind of stick to the, the the norms of what they're used to, just aren't doing the really exciting things. And so my students sometimes will say, well, you could do this, or I'll offer them a suggestion in workshop and they'll say, do you think that would work? And I'm like, I don't know, why don't you try it? And if it doesn't, <laughs> take it out. Yeah. And that's kind of my way of approaching writing in general. It's like, okay, well, I'll just try this and see what happens it takes a little bit of confidence to be like that. And I wasn't always I didn't always have that kind of confidence. I think PhD programs are flawed and problematic in many ways. But for me, what my PhD program did was instill a certain kind of confidence. And I think I'm a better writer for that.
0: I just love talking about this with you. Uh, So so where is where is a place that people can connect with you and find you and, and read more of your work?
1: Um, If they go to my website, it's kellysunberg.com. They can see links to some of my work online. Uh, There's a contact form on there, so they can send me an email, and those emails come directly to my personal inbox. So I do see them. I try to respond to all emails unless they're rude. I did have, after I published a (laughs) New York Times column, some guy found my work email and emailed me and told me I was self-absorbed to even think the new york times would be interested in my my love story and oh and <laughs> i couldn't help myself and i replied at least i'm not so self-absorbed that i'm googling writers i don't know and emailing their work addresses oh
0: my goodness And um, he didn't I mean, that's... respond
1: to that but yeah <laughs> but...
0: right you, you snapped back i mean like you're not gonna just sit and take it but it's just it's that's the thing, like when we write and we put our stories out there. But if you think about it, I don't know how many experiences similar to that you've had. But you wrote an incredibly personal story. And you know, you're still standing, you're doing great. I mean, obviously, you're a person, and I'm sure there's experiences that you know are hard, but you're teaching and you're writing and you're still creating this work. And you know, you survived sharing this most personal story.
1: Yeah, I, um, I think, I hate the way that memoirists are referred to so often as self-absorbed or nasal navel gazing Because I think there's a big difference between being self-absorbed and self-reflective. And Mm -hmm. our culture is not very great at talking about nuance or understanding the difference there.
0: Yeah, I totally agree. And I want to say that I have to... I have to admit that I was a self-hating memoirist in the beginning, and I didn't want to do it, and I didn't think I wanted it because I did think it was navel-gazing, and then I, I came over to the memoir side, and now I have a podcast about it, so I love it. Thank you so much for being my guest, Kelly. This was really just a great conversation.
1: Thank you so much for having me. This has been really fun.
0: Thank you for tuning in to Let's Talk Memoir. For more about this episode and my guest,
1: please visit
0: the link in the show notes or on Instagram at Ronit Plank. That's R-O-N-I-T-P-L-A-N-K. You can also follow me on Twitter, Facebook, and TikTok. If you liked this episode of Let's Talk Memoir, please go ahead and share it with your friends and subscribe. And if you have two more seconds, you can rate and review it on Apple Podcasts, which really does help other people find the show. Thank you so much for being here.